In 2019, shortly after initially launching the podcast, I attended the Georgia Municipal Cemeteries Conference, which was held in Savannah, Georgia. Held in the pre-pandemic world, fall of 2019 actually feels like quite a long time ago. The world of cemeteries is interesting because you certainly have competing interests. You have large rural cemeteries, many of which sold out decades, if not centuries ago, and so now rely on tourist dollars to keep them running. You have municipal cemeteries, which are workhorses, still dealing with many of the contemporary burials in their cities. You have cemeteries, which are businesses. The Georgia Municipal Cemeteries Association tries to focus on the workday lives of people who are trying to keep city-run cemeteries going. During that conference, I had the opportunity to sit down and hear a number of different presentations on a number of different topics. One of those topics was presented by my former co-host, Ashley Shares, the Director of Preservation at Oakland Cemetery here in Atlanta. She deals with a wide range of different tasks that deal with the preservation of their roughly 48-acre cemetery. Oakland Cemetery has the unique situation of being both a rural cemetery-like cemetery, meaning it has a lot of the features of a Victorian rural cemetery, but is and has always been a municipal cemetery started as the first city cemetery in Atlanta in 1850. So while they have the grand architecture and the grand plots and monuments that most private rural cemeteries had, they also have many of the challenges that a municipal cemetery has. Oakland has been sold out since roughly the 1880s. However, due to preservation efforts started in the 1970s, the Historic Oakland Foundation has built, at this point, an enormous endowment, which helps with the preservation on site. Oakland is really impressive. Their preservation program is one of the most comprehensive in the United States. I would say there's only maybe two dozen cemeteries across the country that have as large a staff that is dedicated not just to burials, but rather the preservation of the historic walls, roads, monuments, and other features. This presentation by Ashley Shares is about the fundraising and preservation efforts that were used to restore the Women's Comfort Station. Originally constructed in 1908, it was the first public bathroom in the city of Atlanta. This comfort station helped to set Oakland apart, and it was part of a long campaign, even though they were sold out, to try to convince people to keep their loved ones at Oakland, even after the opening of the new Westview Cemetery on the other side of Atlanta. They built their bell tower, guardhouse, comfort stations. Many of the buildings that you can see at the cemetery today were all actually built after the cemetery had sold out of burial space, which makes it a unique feature. Heavily neglected over time, both the men and women's comfort stations were in terrible condition prior to the restoration. While the men's station still retains pretty much that poor, broken-down appearance, the women's comfort station has since been repurposed. It is used as a multi-purpose space for art installations and other public events at the cemetery, and is really quite an impressive feat. I think this talk is really important to understanding about some of the challenges of fundraising and preservation. Preservation is not always straightforward. Sometimes it involves quite a bit of research and a little bit of digging into the past because often people didn't think it was important to record the details of things like public bathrooms. 
So enjoy this. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of a lens and a peek behind the scenes into what it takes to preserve and maintain a historic cemetery. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Good. Um, thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. This is my first GMCA conference. Um, I'm the director of preservation at Oakland Cemetery. So what that essentially means is I oversee and take part in all of the hardscape preservation. So it's headstones, walls, walkways, and in some cases, historic masonry structures. Um, this presentation is about a project I recently managed at Oakland. Um, it's the Women's Comfort Station Rehabilitation slash Restoration Project. Um, however, the purpose of the next 30 or 45 minutes isn't really to just talk about the project details, um, although I can probably go on for hours and hours about that. Um, it's to make the work I did relevant to you and a project maybe that you have at your own cemetery um, and give you some of the lessons that I learned throughout the project and maybe you can take them and, and use them yourselves. Um, uh, I also really want to express the importance of seeing a cemetery holistically uh, and as a campus, kind of, not just as a, a burial ground, so that you understand the, the importance and the historic value of accessory structures, um, even utilitarian ones that might be on the property. Before I, before I continue, does anyone here work at a cemetery that has buildings on the property? Okay, good. This will be especially relevant. Before I talk specifically about the Women's Comfort Station, I need to give a bit of context. Oakland Cemetery opened in 1850 as a six-acre city burial ground laid out in a typical grid pattern that you'd see in a cemetery like that. But by the end of the Civil War, it expanded to its current size of 48 acres, and these new acres had been surveyed by a landscape architect. So although it started out as a very utilitarian space, it grew and matured to resemble the Victorian garden cemeteries at the time. As you are all probably very well aware, the Victorians loved cemeteries. They loved gardening them, they loved spending time in them, they loved picnicking in them. Thus, Oakland, be, Oakland built a, a number of structures to serve the needs of visitors, as well as facilitate the massive amount of work that was being done on the grounds. This included a greenhouse and a corresponding coal house and boiler room to heat it, a carriage house, the Sexton's house, which you can see in this picture, which is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the year that, the, a few years after the building was built, a shed, a guard house, and in 1908, two freestanding and unfortunately segregated men's and women's restrooms. All of these buildings, aside from the shed, still exist in Oakland. Oakland was really the first park in the city of Atlanta, giving residents a place to escape the city's hustle and bustle. The presence of all these various buildings demonstrate how heavily used the site was by the turn of the 20th century. <clears throat> so the restrooms I previously mentioned were known euphemistically as comfort stations or comfortable buildings. These facilities were not uncommon in public parks at the turn of the century, but freestanding restrooms in a cemetery were, were uncommon. Um, additionally, research shows that these may be the first freestanding restrooms in the city of Atlanta thus giving the two structures incredible historic value. Architecturally, 
both the women's and the men's comfort stations are unique and more ornate than you would expect in such a um, utilitarian structure. There's no buildings in the city of Atlanta that bear a resemblance to it, either of them. Although their facades are nearly identical, um, that's where the similarities between the men's and women's buildings ends. Um, at the time of construction in 1908, the women's building was valued at $1,200 whereas the men's was valued at $1,000. Uh, this is due to the details inside the women's building and the lack of details inside of the men's building. So the women's building, uh, in comparison to the men's building, has a mosaic tile floor, subway tile walls, um, beautiful plaster work, and marble stall partitions. Uh, the men's has a bare concrete floor, no stalls, and a single urinal. Um, so that's why more expensive. But perhaps more important than the historic value of the women's comfort station uh, was its dire condition. Due to a half of a century of neglect and abandonment, the, the bathroom hadn't been used in almost 50 years. Um, and significant damage from a tree that fell in 2008, the building was in very, very bad shape. It was in far worse condition than any other building on site. It was placed on our cemetery's critical need list. Um, in Oakland, when we, when we call something critical, it means that it will be prioritized during the coming, coming year's budgeting. Um, in Oakland's case, as I'm sure you all face in your own practice, uh, we can't always preserve everything that we want or everything that the public wants. Um, it's really a balance of need versus avail available funding. When determining the relevant importance or the relative importance of a cemetery feature, um, be it a building, a monument, a retaining wall, an, an iron fence, you have to balance the feature's criticality, its historic value, and its visibility and potential for funding. You also need to think about the building's possible use uh, and the possibility to generate revenue inside of the building. In our case, we decided to return, uh, that returning the women's comfort station to a bathroom would be prohibitively expensive and a maintenance nightmare. Um, so we gutted the interior and turned the building into an exhibit space. Now that I have intru introduced the <coughs> basics, I'm going to go through each step of the project. If you have questions that pertain to a specific step, um, please feel free to ask them during the presentation instead of holding it till the end, especially if it's really relevant to what we're... So when I first took the concept of restoring the women's comfort station to Oakland's board, I was met with a lot of mixed responses. These ranged from highly supportive um, from the preservation folks on our board to, I quote, that building is so ugly, I don't understand why you don't just tear it down. Um, <laughs> I was a little bit mad about that. It, it took time um, and many people were against this project until the very end. Um, but in late 2018, I did get board approval to start the, the fundraising. Um, if you report to a board or any other governing body, you already know firsthand that oftentimes your opinions and the opinions of your board are, might be very different. Uh, convincing a board of a project's value involves a really strong argument for the necessity of the project. So everything I talked about in the last slide, historic value, architecture, and the criticality of it. You also have to possess the ability to effectively manage the project or have people on your staff that can effectively manage a project. Um, very few people are going to want to support an endeavor led by someone they see as incapable or incompetent. Um, you may want to present a plan outlining the project's <coughs> timeline, checkpoints, um, a rough cost estimate if you're able to, and a scope of work, uh, as well as who you think could fund the project. 
These measures assure the board um, that once funds are raised, they'll be efficiently used. <coughs> After approving a project, um, your board will likely have a lot of opinions on everything from the fundraising to the type of wood that you use in your replacement materials. Um, you have to remind yourself that you and your architect and the contractors that you use are the experts, not the board. Um, so if an investment banker is telling you what uh, cleaning products you should use, you can probably politely tell them to, to shut up. But <laughs> if you have anyone on your board that is an, an, an architect or anyone on your board who used to be a contractor, um, these are people whose advice you, you probably can take and you should be soliciting the advice. The next phase of a major building restoration project is hiring an architect. I have to differentiate between major restoration and a minor restoration because if you're just fixing windows, um, repointing masonry and things like that, you don't need an architect. However, you do need an architect if you're planning substantial structural change to a building. In our case, uh, an entirely new roof system. Your architect will be a very vital part of the project team, so you should take your time and select one with the relevant experience you want. To illustrate this point, I'll talk about my reason for choosing the architect I did and why it was one of the easiest decisions to make on this project. Um, I selected an architect named Brandy Morrison of Morrison Design from Atlanta. Um, she has the preservation background that I was looking for and most of her projects are small to medium scale rehabilitation jobs, very similar to this one. Uh, because of her background, I knew I wouldn't have trouble collaborating on writing specifications that were very strict on the preservation side. She also recently completed a historic structure report for another building on site, and her practice is less than a mile from the cemetery, so she is accessible and she knows the site very intimately. Um, we had a very successful working relationship, and because of this, we're able to move the project forward and um, be able to talk to the contractor that we selected and call on the specifications and call on our knowledge to, to um, make sure that we were in agreement about the project. So the contractors, um, you, your request for proposals or your RFP um, should include the specifications and drawings that you worked on with the architect but also any other information you think the potential contractors would need to know um, and the list of documentation you require from them. This should include a minimum, um, a proof of insurance, their licenses, a uh, list of the subcontractors they plan to use, references, and an itemized bid. After proposals have been submitted, selecting a contractor can be tricky and uh, as Emily was talking about yesterday, uh, going with the lowest bitter isn't always the best thing to do. Um, every project is different, but I'll tell you why I chose the contractor that I did. Wyndham Construction was the more expensive of the bids um, that we received for this project. However, this project was going to entail very, very tricky and precise custom carpentry and framing work, and I was familiar with his high quality historic home rehabilitations in the Grant Park neighborhood of Atlanta where he lives and rehabilitated the house that he lives in as well. So if, he's, if he can do a good job on his own house, I trust that he can do a good job in a building like this. Um, Grant Park is a beautiful historic neighborhood in the city of Atlanta. I'm not sure if you know, but the houses are amazing. A lot of them have extremely fine detail in their carpentry. Um, 
He had a number of impressive reviews on folks that I talked to that had used him for their projects. And most importantly, he is a fourth generation master carpenter. Um, so that was something I really needed for this project. During the bid review process, he was also very good about making multiple site visits and revising his numbers based on an ongoing conversation. So speaking of numbers and speaking of money, um, when fundraising for the Women's Comfort Station, we looked for funding from multiple sources. First, we targeted individuals that were in our network, um, such as our board and regular donors, who typically give money to critical needs projects. We also solicited descendants and lot owners who had family near the building. These people have a vested interest in the area um, around their lot, so they were obvious funders. Um, because the building was being converted to an exhibit space, we could also um, solicit, the bit, solicit um, funds from education-leaning foundations. Sometimes you have to break apart the components of a project for fundraising and get small amounts of funds from different people for different parts. Uh, the last and the final fundraising component came in the form of a party called Cocktails and Conservation, where we partnered with the Atlanta Women's Club and solicited sponsors to offset the costs of entertainment, drinks, and food. When planning an event or a gala fundraiser, um, remember that donations or sponsorships don't have to come in the form of money. They can come in the form of in-kind donations or um, goods and services. So we got the entire um, use of the house, um, which is the historic Wimbish house in Atlanta, for, they usually rent for $5,000 for free from the Atlanta Women's Club. Um, so that's an in-kind donation that we didn't have to raise $5,000 to use the space. Um, you might want to think about incentivizing donations as well as, uh, as a perk when you're trying to have people fund a project. Uh, in this project's case, we put all major donors on a plaque outside the building. Um, so anyone who donated over the $5,000 level was put on a plaque. And that actually was an incentive. Um, people gave more money. People that would have otherwise given 4000 actually gave more because we told them you get to be on a plaque and everyone wants their name on something. Um, we actually made the plaque out of a piece of marble um, that came out of the building that we weren't able to reuse for anything else. Okay, now the fun part. Um, the actual restoration of the women's comfort station took about seven months uh, and involved really careful planning and scheduling. The biggest general considerations I thought about when working with the contractor and architect that you're gonna see throughout this um, were sequencing of project elements deciding what would be done in-house versus by a contractor and subcontractor, and also how far we were willing to go to adhere to the Secretary of the Interior standards um, and where we draw the line between that and actual functionality of the building. Okay. Um, the external stabilization and rebuilding of the masonry parapets and the reconstruction of the roof line um, were the most time-consuming and expensive parts of this project. Given the poor condition of the building, though, these were also the most important components. Um, at the onset of the restoration, the women's comfort station had a plywood roof that was installed in 2008 as a temporary measure after that tree fell on it and badly damaged the building. This, as well as a second mid-century gabled roof, which you saw in that first photograph, all had to be removed. In order to do this safely, the ceiling joists were supported by four by fours and mul multiple floor jacks. Um, this was so that people could access the roof without falling through um, because it was mostly rotten, rotten out. 
all of the items, um, structural and decorative, were photographed, labeled, and measured before they were removed from the building. Um, this was, oh, that's the right slide. Um, that was super important because none of the repeating elements in this building are exactly the same. For example, all of the window grills, like that, were all slightly different dimensions. Um, so we had to label them so that they could go back in the right spot so that we weren't trying to jam them back into a window they weren't supposed to go in. Um, all of the window sashes were, some of them were an inch, almost an inch different than the other ones. So it was really important that we put everything back exactly where it went unless you wanted to cut something, <laughs> which you obviously don't want to do. Um, on that same note, we had to measure all the window openings or the fenestrations because um, most of the masonry had to be rebuilt from the window level up. And we wanted to make sure, again, that we had enough room for the windows. Speaking of masonry, um, the Women's Conversation is a structural brick building um, consisting of three wides of brick, red brick on the two interiors, and blonde brick on the facade. Um, it's capped with a parapet wall that hides a flat roof. Um, in many cases, there was no mortar between the widths of brick and no header courses to tie the wall together. So essentially, this means that the wall had three walls and they weren't cemented together. Um, so this is one of the reasons that the building was um, not doing so well after it got water damage, because as soon as it got water damage, as soon as something fell on it, it just started to fall apart more. Um, when we were re rebuilding the parapet walls, um, I specified that headers be used on the inner widths and that wall ties be used to secure the facade um, and that mortar be used in between. Um, so this wasn't the exact original configuration of the brick. However, it makes the building more structurally sound. And um, those courses of brick on the inside don't show. So this is somewhere where if you were really only concerned about the exterior of the building, you're not concerned about um, exactly what the, the inside looks like because no one's going to see it and it's more stable. Um, a mortar sample uh, from the building was sent to U.S. Heritage Group uh, in Chicago and it was determined that the building is made of lime putty mortar. Uh, because lime putty is incredibly difficult to work with, we decided to use naturally hydraulic lime mortar instead, um, which has some of the desirable traits of the putty, uh, flexibility, lower compressive strength in a Portland cement, and vapor permeability. Um, again, not an exact match to the original uh, in terms of composition, but still appropriate and more simple to use for masons. Um, not a lot of masons will work with a lime putty mortar. Um, like putty, though NHL, um, just like the putty, NHL still needs to be kept moist and shaded for several days to ensure proper curing. Um, to do this over a very, very large area, we use wet blankets and canvas to, um, to cover everything and then cover that with a tarp. And that's a trick I learned from Emily Ford. Um, thank you, Emily. Um, for this part of the project, we use a combination of in-house and contractors. So we use um, masons to rebuild the parapet and hoist the limestone caps back onto the parapet. Um, but because the brickwork on this building is so irregular, um, ranging from half-inch joints to almost non-existent joints, um, we wanted to do all of the repointing in-house to make sure that it was really neat 
and it was exactly the way we wanted to look, wanted it to look. So we did all that uh, in house. The roof systems. Um, the original roof line, like I said before, was a flat roof. Um, so when I say flat roof, I don't truly mean it's 100% flat. So no flat roof is truly flat. It has to drain somewhere. So in this case, it drains to something called a scupper, which is a gutter. Um, so there's a two-way uh, a two-way slope to the roof. It slopes to the west, and it also slopes to the north to the northwest corner where there is a drain. When that drain stopped up decades and decades and decades ago, water backed up and caused a lot of the moisture damage. Um, because we wanted to rebuild the same roof line, we again went with the scupper system um, and the sloping roof. Um, however, we have two scuppers. We installed an emergency overflow scupper that sits an inch and a half or two inches higher. So if the regular scupper stops up, the emergency overflow scupper will start to spew water out and we'll know that the main scupper isn't working right and we'll be able to get up there and clean the leaves out of it or dead squirrels or whatever got in there. Um, so that's the flat roof line which is hidden by that parapet wall you saw being rebuilt um, in that first photo. The, um, there's also another roof line and that's the skirt roof that surrounds the building. Um, this is the most unique part uh, of the exterior of the building. Um, it's decorative, but it also sheds water away from the windows. Um, it's supported by the ceiling joists that project out from um, openings in the masonry. Uh, all of the wood elements of, of this part of the building um, were, are new. Um, there was almost none of the original roof line left. Um, we had a few pieces of the soffit that we were able to use to, to mill new wood, but everything was too rotten to reuse. Um, however, some of the original shingles were still present. There was about 73 of the original um, pressed galvanized shingles. Unfortunately, the company that made them, which is Warlick Sheet Metal in Atlanta, 
is gone. The patent's gone. Um, so to, we had to find shingles that, that match the originals. We actually found a company in Canada, Heather and Little, that makes almost identical replicas. So we went with uh, a product called Galvalum for the replica shingles. So about 75% of the shingles are new on the building. Um, all of the old shingles are on the front facade. Um, the old shingles, as you can see in that photo, are in really bad shape. They're rusted all the way through, so you can't just clean the rust off of them um, because you'll remove the entire shingle. Um, so we used a rust converter to stabilize the material, um, then a rust inhibiting primer, and then um, a paint. And I'll talk more about paint later. Yeah. Okay, so the window grills are also galvanized. These are very interesting windows. They're open in the back, so only the front um, is, is, looks like that. The back is just open. Um, and these aren't one single piece of metal like bent. Um, they're little tiny pieces all soldered together with lead. So really brittle. Um, so that's why a lot of them were broken. When they were reconstructed by a metal artist, he used the same steps to rebuild them. So he soldered every little piece together. Um, on the interior, like I said earlier, the exterior restoration of the comfort station was the most extensive and expensive, um, but the interior work was also really complex. Like the exterior, there was a lot of rot and wood damage on the inside. Um, however, we were able to salvage a lot of material. Um, all of the structural elements of the building were replaced, whether or not they were only a little bit damaged. Um, we figured it'd be best to um, make the building very, very safe because the roof line is, is heavy. We have a three-layer modified bitumen roof, and we just we didn't want to risk it. Um, plus, it doesn't show. So if, if it doesn't show and it's safer, that's where you can, you can replace materials. Um, in cases where we could salvage wood, um, the rot was removed. Um, the area was uh, consolidated, so using a, like a wood consolidant and then a wood epoxy to patch and uh, fill in the missing spaces. We also caulked between all the wood elements on the building. We didn't caulk any of the masonry, um, but we caulked between all the wood elements to keep water from getting in. Um, one of the things if you're restoring a historic building is to understand that dimensional lumber today is different than lumber uh, back in 1908 when this building was made. Everything had to be custom cut and custom milled because a two by four doesn't work and doesn't match anything in this building and a one by and anything, nothing matches. So everything had to be custom cut for this building. So I think everyone's favorite part of this project that has seen it done is the tile floor and the tile walls. Um, the, the original tile comes from American Encaustic Tile Company. Um, which knowing this was awesome. We pulled a tile off the wall and it said AEC on the back, um, or AET. Um, I was like, awesome, we can just call them up and we can get replacement tile. Um, they've, been gone since the, they've been gone since the 60s, so that wasn't gonna happen. Um, fortunately, there's a company called American Restoration Tile that makes replica tiles um, both for the mosaic floor and for the subway tile, the glazed subway tile on the walls. Um, so we, we counted all the tiles that uh, we needed on the floor because we had to 
figure out how many of each color we needed, and then we ordered that. Um, but the new floor, do I have a photo? Well, you'll see it at the end. Um, that concrete patch was um, chiseled down to be lower, and then the new tile was laid in the same exact pattern as that, um, a single tile at a time. Um, to clean the interior of the building, we tried um, what was recommended to us, which was trisodium phosphate, which is for cleaning tile, and it did not work. The stains in this building are 100 years old or more. Um, we ended up using Prosoco Restoration Cleaner, um, which is a harsher material, a, a harsh cleaning product, um, but we use it as you should in a test patch first to make sure that it's not gonna do any damage. Um, but that cleaned up the floor really well. Okay, um, so that picture on the upper right, is that disgusting? Um, that is uh, the original plaster from the building, which is a horsehair plaster. So it used, they use horsehair and other animal hair as a binder to make the plaster stronger. Um, we didn't go back and use horsehair plaster. Um, people still, still, still do that. Um, we ended up using a gypsum plaster. Um, the original plaster on this building was adhered directly to the masonry. We decided that we would adhere it to metal, expanded metal lath, which is the customary thing um, to be done today. Um, I want to talk about, about paint. So painting was one of the opportunities we had to do work in-house instead of paying a contractor to do it to, in order to save a little bit of money um, because this was a very expensive project. So in order to get the correct paint colors, the historic original paint colors, we had a paint analysis done. So microscopic paint analysis where they take off layers and layers of paint and analyze chronologically what that building would have looked like. Um, surprisingly to us, we found out the shingles were green. We thought they were gonna be red. Um, and we found out the interior was white and all of the wooden elements were an antique cream color. We wouldn't have known any of that without a paint analysis. And that's a very, I would highly recommend doing that if you're going to be restoring a building, is, is find out what colors it was um, because that's, that's what gives a building a lot of its character. Um, uh, in a lot of cases, we used a, a paint spray gun instead of um, brush painting because it's a lot more time effective. Um, if you're able to get your hands on a good one, I would recommend using that. You can use it for primer and you can use it for paint. Um, you just have to have a really steady hand. Um, but it saves a lot of time uh, to instead of brushing on the paint, especially in oil-based paint because, you know, oil-based paint is really thick and very difficult to, to use a brush with. Um, and just a note about primer, um, just a little, a little tip for painting galvanized um, things. Galvanized has like a coating on it, so you have to wash things that are galvanized and wash it with a soap and clean it off and then use an etching primer so it helps it bond. Um, we use an automotive primer, um, it worked really well, from an automotive store instead of just a, a conventional primer. Um, so we didn't turn the building back into a bathroom. There's, a, there's a, a commonly held belief in preservation that the best use for a building is the, building, the building's original use or something similar. Um, in our case, it was a matter of reuse the building or lose the building. So 
we didn't have the luxury of being able to decide like, okay, maybe we'll turn it back into a bathroom. We had to do something with the building or it was gonna be gone within a few years. Um, we decided that bathroom would be, again, prohibitively expensive and <coughs> difficult to maintain. So we turned it into a revolving exhibit space. Um, what's a revolving exhibit? Means that the exhibit will be turned over and a new exhibit brought in every six months. Um, so we will be using student groups and local artists to curate the space on a regular basis. Um, the building can also now be used for small meetings, uh, small board meetings, um, and small events. Um, because the building is now open to the public, we've installed a security system. We have Arlo cameras in it to make sure that no one is defacing the building or just going in there and doing anything inappropriate. Um, the building isn't staffed at all times. That's a reason for the security. Um, if you open up a building to the public, you either have to have security or you have to have a volunteer or staff member in there um, curating the space. Um, also, one of, the, one of the really exciting parts of this project is we brought electric to the building for the first time. Um, this was something we went back and forth on because the building never had electric, never had HVAC. Um, we did not reinstall, or we did not install HVAC into the building. The building self-ventilates because of the windows and because of the door, and um, we want the building to self-regulate the way it did historically. Sometimes when you install a new system in a building, it can actually do damage to the building because the building isn't allowed to breathe the way it did historically. Um, but we didn't install lights because we're gonna, ha we're gonna have an exhibit. Um, so there's now, um, light in the building. I guess that's all I have to say about that. Great presentation. Great presentation. The sound quality on that wasn't too poor. That was recorded with a single mic that was not in any way intended to do podcasting. So I know it's a little bit lower quality than you're probably used to. So apologize for that. But uh, really wanted to make sure that that still made it back into the re-records. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please rate and review Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It does help make me much more searchable. Also, Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram to see little extras, fun tidbits, and lots of interesting observations that go along with the episodes. I will be continuing with the re-records over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully the next batch will drop sometime in early February. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. <laughs>